chapter 7, Mark 7, verse 1, and following, and it's also in your bulletin, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word this morning. Let me read it for us. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Now let me just hold on one second here and pause and say, like, why, why is this happening right now? I mean, Jesus is, he's been doing these miracles, and now all of a sudden there's this, this scribes and, and Pharisees are coming from Jerusalem, and they're gathering around Jesus, and they're ready with their criticisms of Jesus' disciples. And why is this happening? Why are the Pharisees and scribes not normally a group of people that normally hang out together very much? Why are they coming together? Well, it's, we get a clue just in that phrase that says they, they come and they notice that the disciples are eating with unwashed hands. And so, the, actually, the exact phrase there is they were eating the breads. Eating breads. And it's interesting because that's the exact same phrase that happens just two passages before when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and they eat bread in the wilderness. And so, what seems to be happening here is that, you know, the experts are coming in. They've realized that just like when Jesus fed 5,000 people out in the wilderness, a red alert has gone up. Maybe between five and 10,000 people have eaten in the wilderness without washing their hands. I mean, this is a major trespass of the tradition. And so Jesus has just led a small army of people to break the tradition of the, of the elders. And so they come in with force from Jerusalem. That's the center of authority. And they come and they, they, they're watching to see if the disciples will continue to do what they did in a big way. And so they're guarding this. And so that's, that's the kind of the context. Let's keep reading verse 4. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. This is the word of the Lord. So this week, I um, had a little bit of a situation with my older sons, one of my younger sons. They were out playing uh, football in the backyard. 
and uh, they play rough. They play tackle football, and so I, I you know, when, it, when they play with me, they have to do two-hand touch, but I let them go crazy, um, you know, when they're by, the, by themselves, and um, so I hear screaming in the backyard, and I think, well, okay, let's go get the Band-Aids now. You know, this is just par for the course. What's going on here? Uh, they're probably injured. Probably the older one has injured the younger one. And so the younger one comes running into the house crying. And, you know, I figure out that he's not, you know, I ask him about, is he okay? And, you know, what does he need? And he's not injured at all, uh, except for maybe his pride. So uh, he's not injured. He just wants his brother to play easier on him. <laughs> and he screams. He's like, this, you know, my older brother, he's, he's not letting me score any touchdowns. And it's just making him mad. Now, as a father in this moment, like, this creates a little dilemma in me. Maybe some of you already kind of feel the tension of, of, of what needs to happen in this, this scenario. What, what rule can I make that will, um, you know, solve the issue? Because I don't want to say um, you should let him win sometimes to the oldest for a couple of reasons. Right? I don't want to say it to the oldest because I don't want him to feel like you know, it's a shameful thing to excel at something um, and you know, that he should always kind of back down uh, just so everybody it's always fair play or whatever. I don't want to send that message to him. And to the younger one, of course, the, for the same reason, I don't want him to feel like um, you know, that he should be given a touchdown just because he doesn't have one. I want him to go out there and, and lose until he wins the touchdown himself so that he has some self-confidence. And so I might want to say to him, the best thing for you to do is just to kind of lose, lose, and lose until you win. And then you'll know that it's a real win. On the other hand, I don't want to say to the older, go ahead, son. It's a Darwinian world out there. <laughs> Dominate your brother and win and push his face into the dirt. You know, like, just destroy him. Um, why? Well, because there's also things that are not included in that rule that I want my sons to know. Like, I want to be able to tell them, son, like, you know, just because you, you know, win all the touchdowns in life, it, it won't matter if you don't have any friends, right? Um, it won't matter if your brother hates you and he never wants to play with you again, then you can't score any touchdowns against anyone because... You're too dominant. And so there isn't just something I can say to them to, to solve the tension. It's one of those issues where they, they both have heart issues going on. And to speak a rule into the situation would be flawed in some kind of way. It would lead toward maybe an undesirable outcome in some kind of way. Whatever external rule I was going to come up with was going to be Flawed, and what really needed to happen was that they needed to change. Each one of them needed to address what was happening on the inside, but it's hard on the outside to speak into that. And so I did, though. I spoke my wisdom into the situation, solved the problem. Um, and like Solomon himself, this, this golden phrase came out of my mouth You boys just stop playing football. <laughs> so. It worked for a while. My point is, there's not a human rule that would address really all that's going on there. There's something internal going on inside of them 
that an external thing would not address. And this is what Jesus is talking about in this passage because we think that consistently what, what matters is the external. How I appear on the outside or what rules do I follow or what system do I commit to. And that matters the most to us. And we, we kind of use that as an easier way to let ourselves off the hook for what's really going on inside of all of us is all these internal things need to happen before the outside is different, is changed. So this is Jesus' message to us this morning. God is concerned not with fixing the outside, as a matter of first importance, we might say. God is concerned not with fixing the outside, but freeing the inside. Of course, God does care about the outside. It matters. Disobedience matters, and, and, and character matters, and the way that you present yourself matters in the world. But, but God's first and foremost concern is about freeing the inside, about changing the inside, and then that leads to external change. This is the Christian message. It doesn't come from fixing yourself up on the outside. It comes from changing on the inside. And so I want to look at those two things We'll spend the majority of our time this morning looking at how we try to fix the outside. And then we'll see how Jesus frees us on the inside. So first, fixing the outside. We do this with rules, traditions, and different displays and shows that we demonstrate to other people that we are better than them or we are a good person. And we do this mostly with, with like rules, and this is what Jesus is addressing here with these Pharisees and their traditions and their rules and I want to give you several reasons why human rules do not make you clean. They do not purify you. They aren't enough for um, salvation, and they aren't enough really to be a full human being. So the first reason is this. This is what the Pharisees show us here. Number one, human rules, they are never enough. They're never enough. We see Mark kind of describing this. You can see he's getting exasperated. Verse 3 and verse 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So Mark's saying they go on and on and on with their traditions, with their rules. Now, the, the present issue is them washing their hands. And actually, the little, literal phrase there is they do not wash with a fist. Your disciples are not washing with a fist. We don't even know what that means necessarily. But this is some kind of ceremonial washing. This is not about making sure their hands are clean, in other words. That's what I'm saying. It's not like us where we tell our kids to wash their hands so that they're clean, they can, they can eat, there's no dirt on their hands. It's more about the ceremony. They're making themselves purified. It's a religious thing. Washing with a fist. We don't know. Maybe it looks something like this. We have no idea. But there's a ceremony that the scribes and the Pharisees want the disciples to do. And not only that, if you start there, you might as well do all these other things as well. You need to start washing your cups and your copper vessels and your dining couches. There's no end to it. It's never enough. And so Mark seems to be saying we could go on and on. Many such things these Pharisees do. The problem with human rules like this and just focusing on the outside of our rules and our traditions is that it's never enough. There's no stopping point. Think about it. If, if washing your hands three times makes you holy, 
then wouldn't washing your hands four times make you more holy? What about five times? Why stop there? Why not wash everything? Why not just constantly be thinking about how you can be more clean ceremonially? There's no line to it. If, if purity and cleanliness is based in ritual, there's no reason to believe that you'll ever be clean enough. Because you could always be a little more clean. You could always do a little more. And this is his problem with these traditions. And by the way, these, these are oral traditions that they're talking about here, about washing. They, they were carried on in Jesus' day. They were not written down, so the elders just carried this tradition with them. But centuries later, these, these traditions were written down. In the Jewish faith, it's called the Mishnah. And they wrote down all of these, these traditions alongside the scriptural text. Well, that wasn't enough. Then there was something called the Talmud. The Talmud came later. It was a commentary from the top commentators on the Mishnah. And now the Talmud and the Mishnah are both the Holy Scriptures. And now we have scholars that have different opinions that are in one school of thought about what the Talmud does, which is addressing one school of thought about what the Mishnah does, which is based on the law of God in the Torah, the Old Testament, the first five books of Moses. So you can see how even in just the practice of it and the writing down of it, it, it becomes this thing that's never enough. We never fully understand what all we should be doing. That's a problem. They're never enough. Two, the second problem with human rules is that they are deceptively reassuring. They're deceptively reassuring. Look at verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, that's a fair question. They're asking him, why, why don't you have your disciples do the tradition? I mean, it's not that hard to wash your hands. Like, why wouldn't you just do it? And in fact, you know, like, why don't you just kind of keep being edgy in some ways, but like, because we know that people are following you, you're clearly a rabbi, and you, you know, you have this following. So like, just satisfy us on this point, will you not? Just wash your hands. It's a good question. Why? We tend to think that people who buck the system just because they want to buck the system are annoying. And, uh, you know, why, why do that? Well, the reason why is because Jesus knows these, these rules are reassuring the Pharisees and scribes of their own status. See, the making of many rules makes you feel more and more comfortable with yourself. The more times that you can draw a line in the sand and you say, I'm the one who practices this, or I'm the one who does this, or believes this, and everyone else is on this side of the line, the more you do that, the more confident you get in your own abilities. And so you, he's saying the problem is you draw the line here, but then you keep drawing lines, and further and further, you're the only holy people, and it makes you into a hypocrite. That's what he calls them in verse 6. And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Literally, the word just means stage actors. You've, you've drawn so many lines, and you've reassured yourself that you're the true holy one so many times that now it's not even about anything that God said. It's about you presenting to the world a picture of how safe and clean you are. So it's deceptively reassuring to just depend on human rules. The third and most important reason why human rules don't make you clean and aren't 
good enough is that they are a rejection of God's rules. This can't be more clear from what Jesus says here. He says the problem with your traditions is not just that they're extra. It's not just that they place an exhausting burden on people. Um, It's not just that you are hypocrites uh, that are basically now about the show rather than the substance. The problem is they are actually a rejection of God. Notice he elevates this. He, He says it three times, and each time it gets more intense. In verse 8, verse 9, and verse 13. In verse 8 he says, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You leave it. Verse 9. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 13. Thus making void the Word of God by your tradition. So when you follow these human rules... It's not just a, that you leave behind what God said for a moment. And it's not just that you reject God and what He says. You actually make void, literally repeal, the Word of God by doing this. Now, you can't really overstate how intense this is. I mean, Jesus is talking to the scribes, the elite preservers of God's law. They're the ones who dictate what God, literally and figuratively dictate what God's law is. And he's saying you have made it void by your traditions. And then he gives an example that will not make any sense to us, but we can understand it fairly simply. He gives the example in verse 10. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say... If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. What's the situation here? He gives an example here of saying, basically, you have this law of God. Honor your father and mother. And the way that that would work in this society is that the father and mother would have these prime earning years, agrarian society. They produced fruit, uh, food and they worked um, in, in the gatherings and the towns. And, and so they had their prime years and then they had their kind of retirement years and they were not able to work anymore. And how, how it would work is that the sons then were responsible for the parents to make sure that they were fed and taken care of. And then around this idea of honoring the parents, there this, this kind of tradition came up. It was called Corbin. And what the, the son would do, maybe as a display of wealth on the negative side, but also as a display of honor to his parents, it, maybe he had wealth enough to take care of his parents plus extra. And so he said, I'm going to take what's normally dedicated to my parents, and I'm going to dedicate it to the temple, and I'm going to do so in their honor. So I'm taking what is going to support you, and I'm giving it to God. It's given to God. It's Corbin. And then everybody would say, ooh, you know, what, what a generous show. Of, 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 um, of care and honor to his parents. His parents are so trusting in God, you might say, that they, they're willing to give up their, their, um, their support. But he says, what happens when you need to actually support your parents? Then the tradition says you can't take back what was given to God. And so if something happens and you fall on hard times, then there's no way to get that money back to honor your father and mother. And so he says, look, your tradition was a nice idea. I understand that you were trying to honor your father and mother, but you can't, if that has the force of law, 
it will inevitably, there will be a moment when, when you, that, that requires you to cross God's law rather than to follow it. It's like the, the law of God is perfect and we introduce humanity into it and it becomes, it becomes more difficult. The psalmist says, you know, the law of God is perfect. It revives the soul. It's, your commandments are righteous altogether. Read Psalm 19, Psalm 119. The perfection of God's law. But then when we make a law on top of that, it's like then we're drawing like parallel lines. And I remember from your you know, elementary school days, when you draw parallel lines, they're never completely parallel. Nobody can draw a complete parallel line, two lines that run next to each other. If you do it with the human hand, at some point, you'll cross. The lines will cross each other. And that's what he's saying here. We take God's law and we draw a human hand over it. At some point down the road, the law of God and our traditions are going to cross and you're going to have to follow your, tradi- you're going to follow your tradition rather than the law of God. And so we can't do that. We come back again to what God's law is and how good and perfect and beautiful it is. Now I want to spend just a few minutes talking about where we see this. Kind of, I know that we don't have Corbin that tradition right now. Um, but it is just true that in almost every domain of our life, we are tempted to focus on the external rather than the internal. And I want to mention three, three domains where we tend to do this a lot. The first would be in the domain of the home. And when I'm talking about that, mostly what I mean is our parenting and our marriages often reflect a value of external over internal. A focus on the outside rather than what's going on on the inside. How can we see this? Well, in our parenting. It's often when we're so rule-heavy with our kids. And we make them understand that what happens on the outside is more important than what's going on on the inside. You need me. You need to, to reflect you know, my values. You need to, to look like me. You need to be respectful. And we, we're really about our comfort rather than their growth. And sometimes we make all these rules and place them on our, on our kids as burdens. We can be overbearing with our spouses. God did not give us one way to load a dishwasher. And I know that many of you husbands and wives in the room Believe that you have God's way of loading the dishwasher. It's just something that you know to be true. I mean, the Lord has spoken it to you. You are gifted at loading the dishwasher and your spouse is not. Or insert whatever it is that you argue about. You can also do this with roommates, by the way, right? You know the right way to do this thing. You know how organized you're supposed to be. You know that is really, you know, your left brain is more important than their, their right brain. And all of these things, we can kind of prioritize what our traditions are, what, are, what makes the most sense to us, and give it the force of law. Look, I'm the worst at this. This is something I've had to continually grow in in a marriage over and over and over again, repent of, because I'm a perfectionist. And we need to admit that the, at some point, and at some point very early, the, the things that we insist on in our marriages and with our kids often has more to do with ourselves than with them. It has to do with our family of origin, with our 
parents, maybe in reaction to, or you want to follow your parents, but your parents are kind of standing over your shoulder. They're, they're still dictating some terms for you. And then you think that that is the way that it should be done. Oftentimes, our rules have to do with our own woundedness and our own story and why we're so afraid of certain things and why we think certain things should be emphasized has to do with that. Maybe even genetics, that we have certain tendencies towards certain things. But any factors you want to throw in there, what I'm saying is that does not correlate one-to-one with the law of God. And the moment that we make that the law of God in our home is this way of doing things, we create a burden that is outside of Scripture and actually leads our kids and our spouses away from Jesus. We can do this in being too exclusive with our families. You know, this is the Christian way to do X, Y, or Z, schooling family life, marriage roles, and how all those things work out. We say, this is, this is the way. And everyone else, even the other Christians, they're not doing it the right way, and we send these signals to our kids, like, oh, our family doesn't do that. You know, that kind of thing. That's, that's against what Jesus is saying here. It doesn't mean that the Scripture doesn't tell us there are certain things we should do and shouldn't do in our families. It absolutely does. But are you so certain that the things that you're insisting on are the things that the Scripture themselves insist on in the home. I had this friend in high school, I'll just call him Tim, just in case he listens to this, but, you know, he, he lost his mom early on, and his dad never recovered from that, and I think that's part of why, but he was the strictest parent I've ever seen in my life. So strict. Uh, he expected perfection of my friend. And... It was just so sad to see. I mean, he would get a bad grade, you know, one, one kind of C or something like that. It would be grounded for six months, that kind of thing. And so we were all, I have all these memories of doing things at his house, right, because that was the, we all had to come to him um, because he was always grounded. Now, you'd think, this is the most rebellious kid. You know, this is the guy who's pushing the limits, and so he needed that kind of correction. Absolutely not. This is the sweetest guy you've ever met in your life. Totally mild. Totally the good kid. You know, we were all Christians and everything at that point, but we were always encouraging him to break the rules. Like, come on, dude. You know, this is so oppressive. Even up to 17, 18 years old, and um, when you walked into his house, it just, there were eggshells everywhere. And his, his dad would blow up on him and would shame him in front of us and all of these things. That's not what Jesus invites us into in our homes. You've got to ask yourself, is our home about the heart? Or is our, is our home about some kind of external thing that we want to measure against and that we're always letting our kids or our spouse know that they're falling short? Let's talk about social media. <laughs> because it's really the premier place to be a Pharisee these days, Right? To be a hypocrite, stage actor, focused on the outside rather than the inside. We do this through filtering, making our images more attractive. We do it through humble bragging, where we're saying something negative, but it's actually a way to to be positive on ourselves. We do it through virtue, signaling. This is what I really care about. I'm going to share this. I'm going to forward this. I'm going to make sure that everybody knows that I am on the right side of this debate. The right side being determined by the mob. 
and whoever is the, you know, is the, the trending mob is the king. But whatever it may be, what we do on social media is often like, this is what I want you to see, and this is what, but we know inside this is not the reality. Anytime we do that, we're acting in the same way. We're focusing on the external. Even in our, in our day, even being more authentic and being more raw with our posts can be a way to demonstrate how like, we want people to see us on the outside. It can be very twisted. Even this week, I saw on the BBC, uh, President Obama, of all people, uh, former President Obama, who many would say is more of on the progressive side of things, and you know, this is not a political statement or anything like that, just saying he's the one who's like calling out virtue signaling this week. He's like, if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or use the wrong verb, then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself. Because, man, you see how woke I was. That's not bringing about change, he said. If all you're doing is casting stones, you're probably not going to get very far. That's easy to do. We do this. We can do it with spiritual things. We can do it with political things. You can say, you know, if you post about something, an issue, refugees, you've never met a refugee, you've never financially supported a refugee, you're not sure what the definition of a refugee actually is, I'm going to guess that you don't, you're not posting about refugees, you're posting about yourself. The same is true of it, people who post Bible verses, by the way, sometimes. Not everyone who posts about refugees and not everyone who posts about Bible verses. But there's this tendency that we have to say, I want people to see this so that I can be affirmed as the right thing. The outside is what matters. Not the fact that I don't care about people or that I'm not growing spiritually myself. The thing is on the outside. We see this in the domain of the church. Especially over time, the church can grow to a certain point and start caring about externals rather than the message of Jesus and what it does to our hearts. We're always, always in danger of this as a church. When we focus on trappings, we read a story about the founding of Calvary Chapel churches. I don't really know much about Calvary Chapel. I know some people have had good experiences, some bad. I know Chuck Smith, the founder, is a controversial figure in some ways, but this is a positive story about him. He, he founded Calvary Chapel in, in uh, California, and they began as this church on the beach, and they had all these hippies coming to the church. They started doing this evangelism. They would come in, and they have um, bare feet, because they were hippies, and uh, they would walk on these oil deposits on the beach and get dirty feet. And when they would come in, they would track these oil deposits into the sanctuary. And at one point, someone, probably the person who was cleaning the carpets, uh, posted a sign that said, shirts and shoes, please. And Chuck Smith, the founder and pastor of the church, came and he, he ripped the sign off. He immediately called a meeting with all of his leaders, and what they decided to do instead was to rip out the carpets so that they could bring these people in. Now look, there's nothing wrong with taking care of carpet. There's nothing wrong with making sure your kids are well behaved. There's nothing wrong with the externals. That's not what we're saying. The question is, are the externals the focus, and do they prevent you from seeing what's going on in the heart? And we always have to be asking ourselves 
that question. There was no sign today that I'm aware of that said you got to have shoes and shirt and whatever to, to be admitted in the church here today. But what would the sign say if somebody were to post honestly what's going on in New Valley downtown? What, what would it say if it was saying this is required to be this way, to be this age, this race, this socioeconomic status, this dress style, this understanding of theology, this denomination, whatever it may be, this is not the thing that we're doing. We're a church about Jesus Christ, about changing the heart. We have to fight for that gospel culture all the time to make sure that we're not making externals the reason why we come to a place or the reason that we're a part of something. In the home, on social media, in the church, and many other places. Jesus is not about the external, fixing the outside. In fact, He is about freeing the inside. And we'll close with this. What is Jesus' message? He calls everyone together. He says, calls to them, and He said, verse 14, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into Him can defile Him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile Him. Now something to see here right away is this. Jesus does not disagree that you are defiled. It's not the case that Jesus says, well, don't focus on the external because really everybody's fine. Everybody, whether, however they look on the outside or the inside, they're all fine. No. He says you are defiled. But it's not the outside that defiles you. It's the inside. That's what's wrong with you. It's not that you can't keep up an image. It's that you have a bad heart. And Jesus' intensity there is scary at first, but ultimately liberating. This is why it's freeing. It's on the inside. First, it's scary though. Because when you think about the outside, that seems to be in the domain that you have some control over. You can control, to some extent, how your kids look, how you appear, what you do on social media. You can control all of that to some extent. When it, it gets scary, though, because you can't do anything about your heart. There's nothing you can do to fix what's wrong inside of you. And there is something wrong. It's sin. It's defilement. We serve a holy God. We have walked away from Him. That is wrong. It's wrong of us. And that's per- the wrongness is located inside. But see, it's only scary for a minute because you've got to understand the Gospel. It's ultimately liberating. Because while you can't change what's inside of you, He can. And He promises that He will if you come to Him. And it's only in one place. You don't have to fix all of the problems of the world. You need, to fix, you need to have fixed what's going on in your heart. The problem can be dealt with. And so it's a freeing thing. That's why I call it freeing the inside. His disciples, yeah, they could have washed their hands, but they were needing to eat so they could do ministry. Yeah, it would be impossible to have all those 8,000 people that were in the wilderness to ceremonially wash their hands in the right way before they're fed. It's it's a wrong thing for them if some of them had done that, but Jesus is not focused on that. He's free. He's like, hell, we're all here. Like, let's let's give them something to eat. We're doing this ministry. Let's eat. Hey, look, you made this gift to God in the temple for your parents. 
but you need the money back for your, to take care of them. Let's be free with these things. And it's amazingly freeing because you don't have to spend your life exhaustingly making other people believe that you are not rotten. You can admit it. You can freely proclaim that what's wrong with you is evident and obvious to you as well as to others. Because you're not leaning on the outside for them to accept you. You're leaning on Jesus. As the old hymn says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I'm not going to trust anything that gives me some kind of external comfort, some kind of thing, no matter how sweet it is, no matter how good it is. I'm not going to trust in that. I'm going to trust in what Jesus has done for me because Jesus is the only one who lived in ultimate conformity on the inside and the outside. And that's why He has to be your hope. He's the only one who matched What was going on inside of him was a heart for God, and what was going on outside of him was the same. And so when you live and you move and you have your being in him, you are changed. Your heart is changed. The way the scripture describes it is this heart surgery. You know, I will take your heart of stone. You have a hard stone heart, stony heart of rock, Ezekiel says, and I will remove that from you, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will change you from the inside. And once the inside is changed, then you will see you will have a lifetime of changing the outside. Of course it matters that you begin to obey with your outside and that you begin to appear to be a Christian. And all of these things change over time. But it's not where God starts. And it's not where you should start either if you're far from Him this morning. You start with the heart, which is where Jesus is most concerned. And then the outside will follow. Let's pray.